What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Well, look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. The nuns taught us there are two ways through life. The way of nature and the way of grace. You have to choose which one you'll follow. We've shared a number one film of the year exactly once in the past decade, Josh. Terrence Malick's The Tree of Life. That's a good one to agree on, I'd say. Yes, it is. This week on the show, we start our countdown of the top 20 films of the 2010s. I have chosen The Way of Nature to make my picks. Josh, you're more of a grace guy. Hey, grace is the only way you're going to get Casa de Mi Padre on your list. Oh, no. That and more ahead on Film Slotting. Welcome to Film Spotting. Just that one shared top film over 10 years, Josh, Terrence Malick's The Tree of Life. How helpful were those annual top 10 lists when it came to assembling the top 20 of the decade? It was a good starting point. Well, would you believe me if I said I didn't even look at them? Really? What? That's not exactly true. I did when I made some selections. Then I, for a few of them, I thought, was this my number one of the year? Was yeah. this my number two or three? And then I went back and checked. But I didn't really start with that in order to begin my map. No, it was the same with me. I think I did start out looking at Letterboxd in terms of movies that I had given five stars or yeah. four and a half stars. And then, of course, down to four, which we lament all the time. Those are mostly arbitrary anyway. And then it was only after I sort of had my top 20 pretty well set that I went back and said, okay, did I have this one at two or three or number one? And it didn't really change anything. Well, I'll admit the star ratings were helpful in this case. Yeah. I often dismiss them, but it was helpful for me to filter all reviews over 10 years and see what landed at least at this point and above in terms of stars and kind of start there. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that helped. Well, this week on the show, it is part one of our top 20 films of the decade countdown. We're going to share our 11 through 20 picks. Also, our podcast listeners will get the experience of the official kickoff of Film Spotting Madness 2020, the best of the 2010s. Our radio listeners, if you want to hear all of that and get this week's full show, you can find it at filmspotting.net, or we encourage you to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. I guess that means we're going to jump right in then, our 20 through 16 picks. And I know often we say we're going to do this very quickly, but we actually intend to do at least these five picks relatively quickly. Right, Josh? Yeah, we're going to try. Um, can we talk a little bit more process, though? I think we start? have to. Okay, because this, it, it wasn't just a matter of using the star rating filter. It did get quite Unfortunately. a bit more complicated. And the first thing I did was ask myself a couple of questions. What is a list like? I've never put together a list like this before. I know that you did it previously on the show for the 2000s. Um, so this was my first time really trying to compile something like this. And I wonder, does this list, is it going to represent the decade? Is it going to represent my decade? Mm -hmm. Is it going to represent the critical consensus over the decade? Or is it going to represent maybe a first stab at the canon? Um, Those are all directions. Do you have answers to those questions? (laughs) I mean, mine became the cop-out, the combination of all those factors. But maybe weighted a little differently because of where we stand right now. 
in relation to the decade in question, because I do think we're at a very unique point to do a list like this. This isn't an annual top 10 list where we're still in the thick of it. For me, I've mentioned this before, I usually look at those as my movie diary of the year. You know, this is what I really had the most fun with. Yet we're also not so far away that we can really start to form a concrete canon as we would, you know, if we talked about the top 10 films of the 1950s, Mm. right? Where we're so far removed from it. We're in a sweet spot here to do this. Because we're eyewitnesses to the past decade. We were there, right, in the middle of it. But we're also – we have a little bit of distance at this point to tell which films spoke particularly to those 10 years and which ones also had sort of a personal staying power. Mm -hmm. So so my mixture came down to these ingredients basically. My own taste, of course, the cultural context. Sure. And then that personal staying power element, which was basically which ones have continued to bounce around in my memory. Mm-hmm. And that's why it didn't just become my top films of each year that I loved at that time. Not all of those are even on here. Yeah, it's interesting that you bring up how much distance we do or do not have, because once I got through my list, I did want to make sure I knew which year each movie did fall in. And it turns out I do have every year of the decade covered over my top 20. Not by design, didn't matter to me, but it did work out that way that I have at least one movie from each year. But oddly enough, or perhaps not odd at all, the most represented year looking at all 20 of my picks is 2011. And second place is 2010. So I was initially a little bit surprised to find that such a high percentage of my picks came from those two years, the two first years of the decade. But it turns out, I guess, instead of recency bias, recency became prejudice for me. And I'm probably not alone in that. And frankly, if I really broke it down, my top five films from 2019 could all be on this list. We talked about what a great year 2019 was. I had the same thing, I think, because of It's recency. I was a little cautious about Mm -hmm. putting too many of those on. Our criteria does pretty much fall into line, though. I do try to approach these lists, having only done one previously, in that sort of sight and sound fashion. I am trying to think of it, at least initially, as what do I consider to be the greatest films of the decade? Then as you really get into those picks and start maneuvering them and you start thinking about the incredibly tough choices you have to make, it falls a little bit into film spotting madness territory where I start imagining life. And this is a Sam technique that I have glommed onto. You start imagining what it's like to actually live life without these movies. If they actually were being thrown in an incinerator and you would never get to re-experience or re-explore or share these movies with other people. Then that all said, I am balancing to some extent, not so much the cultural impact of these films, but maybe the cultural relevance in terms of how much they reflect Mm -hmm. their era. But they also have to still be personal. These have to be films that resonated with me. And that as I watch, to go back to a term we've used here recently, definitely used it at the Music Box during our live show, they have to reflect that thrill of discovery. The sense that I had watching the movies of seeing something I felt like I'd never seen before or at least had never seen it presented that way before. So I had to remember that rush with all of these picks. And if I didn't have that rush, then maybe it belonged outside of the top 20. I will add that, as sometimes happens with my choices, inadvertently there ended up being a kind of running theme throughout my picks. And it was really driven by a film that's going to come up, actually my number 13 pick, one of the movies. I didn't get to many, but I rewatched one film 
in preparation for this list. And there was one word that that movie then put in my brain that didn't escape throughout this whole process, and that was connection. I was thinking about what these movies say about connection, how I connect with them. It's why we engage with cinema at all, I think, to try to understand something about the human experience. And it's why artists create art. There's something they're trying to understand. There's something they're trying to explore, something they're trying to explore, something they're trying to share. So connection, if you are playing the film spotting drinking game, perhaps, I wouldn't recommend it. Don't do a shot every time I say that word over this episode and probably part two next week because it would get ugly. All right. I don't have anything on me, so I, I should be okay. All good. Are you ready then for your number 20? I, I am ready. Really quick side yeah. note. Another place that did this exercise among the many outlets was Film Comment. I don't know if you looked at their I big didn't. extravaganza. That that was fascinating. They pulled all sorts of critics, filmmakers, and scholars. I'm more I'm of an Us cite... Weekly guy. <laughs> Are you? Okay. I'll have to borrow that They from you. didn't do next the top time, 20 no, films I of the decade. So. Next time I'm on the beach. I just want to cite one pick from that. Jordan Cronk, the critic and programmer for Acropolis Cinema. Now, these, you know, film comment. These are the smartest of the smart here, Adam. Mm -hmm. Guess what he named as film of the decade? I can't even guess. Pain and Gain. Come on. Pain and Gain. Here's the quote. I don't believe it. Here's the quote. No movie captured the tragic essence of unchecked American capitalism more vividly. So, Jordan... I hear you. He now, apparently hadn't seen Parasite Jordan, yet. <laughs> Jordan did. It's tragic. Pain and Gain's tragic, all right. <laughs> Jordan did the work for me, so um, that is not in my top 20, I can't I'm afraid. believe you wrestled oh, that I saw into that. this show. The smile on my face when oh, I read that. Wow. This should be a Michael Bay free zone, <laughs> and it will be for it is from now the on. remainder of these shows, <laughs> All Josh. right. My number 20 is The Act of Killing from 2012, Joshua Oppenheimer's new form of activist documentary because it not only challenges its audience, but I think mostly and most directly challenges its subjects. And really, it uses the lure of cinema to get them to confess to heinous crimes. That's number 20. Number 19 is Chirac from 2015. You could probably say Spike Lee's Black Klansman was the way to go. Last decade, it's definitely cleaner, a more palatable return to form. But I'm more of a sucker for Spike at his messiest, most audacious and problematic Chirac is all those things, a musical sex comedy about gun violence on Chicago's South Side. Number 18, Once Upon a Time in Anatolia from 2012, when a world master makes, at least from what I've seen, his best film, it should probably be on this list. I've got no complaints. Here's the second Parasite mention, if this is where you want to put Bong Joon-ho's Parasite. But I'm still haunted by this slow burn murder mystery from Turkey's Nuri Bilga Jalan. Number 17, here's one that I revisited for this list, Adam. Something in the back of my head told me, you might want to look at the bling ring hmm. again from 2013. I liked it when it first came out. Didn't put it among Sofia Coppola's best, but watching it again, especially with a number of years that have gone by where celebrity slash influencer slash social media culture has just exploded, um, getting to see that from the inside of the hazy bubble that she creates and the kids in there. Um, really put it up to the top to me. So it's number 17. My number 16 going all the way to the start of the decade, 2010, Winter's Bone, writer-director Deborah Granick's heroic classical myth that just happens to be set in a dismal stretch of backwoods Missouri. And it also happened to unleash Jennifer Lawrence. Yeah. 
well, no arguments from me on those picks, though The Bling Ring is definitely the movie that I, too, just liked and didn't really put it up there with some of Sofia Coppola's better films, and it's one I feel like I do need to revisit. Definitely The Act of Killing and Anatolia are two films that stand out among my favorite from the decade as well. We will see if either of them will make my list. And I mention, again, how important it was for these films to be personal, which doesn't mean I was necessarily trying to just make idiosyncratic choices, but they had to reflect an experience that I uniquely had with this film. And that's certainly true of my 20 and 19. I've got Cleo Barnard's The Arbor from 2011 as my number 20. I love documentaries. I love documentaries about artists, and I love documentaries that blur nonfiction with fiction. And this film obviously checks all three of those boxes. It tells us about Andrea Dunbar, who was a playwright from England I was otherwise not familiar with. And Barnard interviews her family members and her friends and her children who have now grown up. And one of the unique stylistic approaches here is Barnard then takes those interviews. She hires actors to lip sync to that soundtrack. And the other touch I really love is some of the excerpts of her plays are acted out in the open, in public, in the exact space that Dunbar herself grew up in. And she was a playwright who was trying to relate her story to the world. She was talking about her family, the people she knew, their struggles, and hope an audience would connect with it. And I think Barnard does what Dunbar herself was trying to do, taking that kind of matter of Dunbar's life and elevating it to art, a new piece of art with all of the tools available to her. At number 19, I have another film that was nominated for a golden brick. The Arbor actually won back in 2011. I've got Tower, directed by Keith Maitland. This is from 2016. Another fascinating experiment, one that's based on real people and events as well. And it Definitely didn't factor in my decision to include it, but if we're going to talk about relevance to the decade, this is a film about the first mass school shooting ever back in 1966 on the University of Texas campus. Charles Whitman, of course, who is mostly an unseen character and probably appropriately so in this film. And Maitland uses rotoscoped animated interviews and recreations, and he combines that all with actual archival footage and photos and sound and it's 96 minutes almost in real time living through that event with those students and community members and as i said it's not really about whitman at all it's about these people and about these people not as victims but as actual people those who experienced it are always going to be connected by this and you see the courage of so many people throughout the documentary who put their lives on the line to help other people Number 18, I've got a Spike Lee movie as well, but I'm going with one that maybe, and I do mean maybe, is slightly less audacious and problematic than Chirac. It's Black Klansman from 2018. Another one where if we talk about relevance, you can point to the rise of white nationalism over the past three to four years in our country. But Spike Lee makes that connection explicitly clear and that connection between our present and our past within the film. And he does it in multiple ways at the end, certainly with footage from Charlottesville. And this is Spike being Spike in terms of not only being perhaps at times problematic, but other P words. It's not pedantic, but it is pedagogical. He wants to teach. That's what Spike Lee does with his films. And 30 years after the incendiary do the right thing, 
with Black Klansmen. And Chirac was great, too. I really like that film. But especially with this one, he proved he's still vital as ever. And we're going to hear a voicemailer in a little bit who will mention Hitchcock and his quote about pure cinema. And I don't have that exact quote or definition handy, so I don't know what Hitchcock was referring to. But when I think of pure cinema and just indelible images and scenes from the decade, I think about that Charlottesville montage at the end of Black Klansman. I think about Kwame Ture's speech with those tableau shots of the faces. I think about the deconstruction of Birth of a Nation that happens at the center of this film where Spike reappropriates it and he juxtaposes moments of black power with chants of white power. It's more P-words. It's provocative and it's really powerful. At number 17, I have a film that in my initial bit of moving picks around probably had in my top 30 to 40 picks, Josh. And really, the more I thought about it, the more I was sure I was underrating this film. And there's someone close to us, Josh, who definitely would feel like we're underrating it. It's her favorite film of the decade. Let's go ahead and hear a voicemail. Hey, Adam and Josh, this is your PA cat calling in to talk about my favorite movie of the 2010s and definitely one of my favorite movies of all time. Um, it's actually from 2010. And as you know, I was pretty young in 2010. And I definitely didn't have any notions of being as into movies as I am today. So it feels a little silly, but sensible at the same time that a movie that felt so huge then still feels huge today, which is The Social Network. It's a movie that I definitely don't hold up as a perfect historical relic or a great predictor, but that really wasn't the point. And I do think it was onto something smarter and bigger and more correct than anybody really knew at that time about how we would come to connect with each other. That kind of unhinged monologue that Justin Timberlake's Sean Parker goes on about how we lived in cities and now we live on the internet was a little corny, but also fairly prescient, I think. Um, there's really so, so much to love about this movie. You know, I always joke that a movie about Facebook can actually be so personal, but really it's not about Facebook at all anyway. The Social Network, still my favorite screenplay, my favorite original score, and my favorite movie of the 2010s. Thanks, guys. It's almost like Kat and I coordinated this. You heard her there talk about the film being, of course, about how we connect and all the perils that come with it. It's a movie that at first I think I wrote off Josh a little bit. I don't mean back in 2010. It was my number two film of that year. But now thinking about it for the best of the decade, as if Facebook somehow isn't the behemoth that's still a dominant force in our culture and still a dominant force in our politics, as if it was somehow dated. But then Facebook, and Kat said this, Facebook was never what the movie was really about anyway. And I was looking back at my notes. There was a listener at the time who sent us a comment saying that they were, quote, gobsmacked that we were so interested in this film. It had come up in one of our previews of the year. And my sense at the time was, why would we not be interested in a movie that's about friendship and about betrayal and about ambition and greed and all the stuff that great drama is really made of? But it's also really about power. And it's about responsibility in an age when one person, one company can have way too much of it. And also, going back to my theme, the potential impossibility of authenticity and meaningful connection in this social media age, in this postmodern age. And we talk about the conflict of truth versus perception and facts and alternative facts. What define the 2010s more than that? And unfortunately, I fear it's only going to get more contentious and dangerous this isn't why it's here as well, but I do like David Fincher being represented on my list, Josh. Finally, at number 16, I have 
another film like Arbor that won our Golden Brick Award. It's Yorgos Lanthimos from 2010. Dogtooth. And you want to talk about gobsmacked? That's a good word for my reaction to Dogtooth when I saw it. And this whole notion of truth and reality, everyone's truth and reality is subjective. We learned that watching this film, certainly the world that Yorgos Lanthimos creates. It's this wonderfully absurd sealed universe, which we then saw in The Favorite, of course, in its own way and some of his other films. But outside of this house where we have this family that's basically being kept in seclusion and is being kept in the dark about how the world really operates and they have their own language within this family and their own rules of operation, there are going to be these external forces that are always going to encroach. And you're going to see the human need for knowledge and the human need for experience ultimately overpower any type of hold that a father and mother want to maintain over their children. And again, didn't pick this film because I wanted Lanthimos represented, but I'm glad he's here. Alps, a very good film and The Lobster and The Favorite. Yeah, certainly incredible run. Yeah, certainly two of the better films of the decade. And I'll admit it here. I haven't actually still seen The Killing of a Sacred Deer, and I don't have a good excuse for that based on his other films. Yeah, it's it's definitely interesting, but probably I would say the lesser of that group. So you've got him well covered and glad to see that he's on this list to represent the decade. Also glad that a couple of these you have are idiosyncratic in good ways. I'm a big fan of Tower and The Arbor as well, but those are definitely more you films. I think I described mm-hmm. um, The Arbor as hyper meta. It's not yes. just meta, it's hyper meta. Um, so those are strong and I love that you put Black Klansman on there because looking at Spike Lee's career, you know, coming out of the 2000s, he had made two good films, Inside Man and Miracle at St. Anna, but they 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 weren't exactly Spike Lee films. Hmm. Um, you know, yeah. that doesn't mean for worse, but they were just something a little different. And if you had asked me in 2010, like, who, who might you want to see kind of get back the, the magic, he would have been at the top of the list. Rocky Start with Red Hook Summer around 2012. I'm not a huge fan of that one. But yeah, with Chirac and Black Klansman, he's at the top of his game. I love to see that. So we did rush through that fairly quickly and in a little bit unorthodox fashion as we just sort of dropped all five of our choices on you. We will get back to our normal format here in the next segment and get into a little bit more detail about each of our 11 through 15 picks. That's coming. But first. This is blasphemy. This is madness. This is absolute madness. This is absolute madness, Ambassador. Why should you build such a thing? Madness. This is Sparta! That's right. Let the bloodbath commence. Film Spotting Madness 2020, the best of the 2010s, is upon us. If you're a Film Spotting newsletter subscriber or you follow us on social media, you may be among the thousands of listeners who have already suffered through round one of Film Spotting Madness. Maybe for the uninitiated, we should give them a little bit of background on what madness is. Indeed, it's our annual bracket-style tournament. So we take 64 films, in this case, 64 films from the 2010s, and it's all going to come down to one. Only one film can reign supreme. As you mentioned in trying to pick titles for your best of the decade list, Adam, we do use the incinerator rule here. So that that's pretty much official, right? Yep. If, a, if a film loses, it's, it's matchup, gone. it's burnt. Yeah. 
No longer can anyone watch it. Now, there have been a few subterfuges here and there over the years where hidden copies might be available in certain places, but you have to be you know, a pretty close listener to find that. So that means this year, pretty soon, there's only going to be one film from the 2010s left. That's going to join last year's winner. There Will Be Blood. That won Best of the 2000s. Previous to that, we did Best of the 90s. Fargo won. So those are the only films that are going to exist. <laughs> That's it. From the last three decades. The winner this year, There Will Be Blood and Fargo. It makes me think, you know, we might want to lean towards something a little sunnier to sure. win this year to balance things out if you only have three movies to watch over and over. These are some pretty heavy films. Josh rooting for a comedy. Yeah, let's to get some win. comedy in there. Film spotting madness. Fargo, very funny, though. You know, we're going to get into round one, some of the options and we are going to share with you some of the play-in results we did have a lot of different movies competing for those final spots to be among the 64 but i suppose i have to first tell the world who doesn't follow us on social media who doesn't follow me on letterbox that i made good on my bet film spotting madness can yes. only officially yes. start i can't wait because to hear this review for the first time i lost film spotting madness we have a little bracket wager myself josh sam and the godfather of film spotting madness listener mike merrigan we do this bracket challenge every year we try to predict it just like the basketball tournament mm-hmm. we see how the points shake out and josh i don't know if you've lost it every year but you've lost it at least twice i have lost at least twice yes. and you've had to Serve your punishment by watching an Adam Sandler Netflix movie. Yes, this is the standard punishment, as long as he keeps making them. I lost last year, and I tried to get out of it by suggesting that Adam Sandler's Uncut Gems Mm -hmm. is on Netflix, so I am good. No. But that didn't work, and over the weekend, instead of re-watching one of these great films from the 2010s, I watched a not-so-great film from the 2010s. It wasn't good? Well— I didn't realize. Wait, what was it called? First, of it's all. called Murder Mystery. Oh, that's right. It's Jennifer, Jennifer Aniston. Aniston. Okay. By all accounts, I still somehow got way luckier than you, yeah. based on the one I watched. Most people say it's not only shorter than some of these other Adam Sandler Netflix joints, but it's one of the easiest to watch. Okay. And I haven't watched those other films, but I'm guessing that's probably the case. I'm trying to remember it's, what I watched. <laughs> It's pretty breezy and harmless. Okay. This one, Murder Mystery. You watched, what was it, The Ridiculous the week, Six or I something? I watched The Week Of yeah. with Chris Rock, despite that fact, not good. And maybe it was Ridiculous Six. I, <laughs> I think it was Ridiculous Six. So Murder Ooh. Mystery. Ouch. It is harmless. But I had no idea that it's basically knives out for people suffering from head trauma. <laughs> Okay. I mean, if you if you were curious what Knives Out would be, because the plot of this is that Sandler and Anderson are this married couple who finally go on their honeymoon and they get ensconced. They get embroiled in this murder mystery aboard a yacht where he's not exactly a patriarch, but kind of serves that function. He's the older uncle to most of these people in the room. They're all hangers on. They're all parasites. They all want his money. And guess what? He doesn't know he's about to die, but he's changing his will. Oh, man. And he's going to cut them all out of it. And, of course, he ends up dead. We even get a montage of interviews with people. This is awkward. Yeah. Murder Mystery came out in June. I hope you're not accusing Ryan Johnson of anything. Plagiarism. No, I'm not. And here's why. Instead of doing it the opposite way and saying what Murder Mystery isn't 
compared to Knives Out. I'll say then what Knives Out has that Murder Mystery doesn't because it came out second. And that's, of course, the sly subversiveness and the political commentary and the cleverness and the ingenuity of that script and all the satisfaction that you get from the various revelations and, of course, just how impeccably shot it is and those great performances none of that none of that is in murder mystery i like this new method of reviewing a terrible film you've come up with right just pick one in a somewhat similar genre that does everything better and praise that movie there you go perfect so knives out a much better film than murder mystery shockingly than murder mystery who would have thunk have i served my penance yeah can we move on yeah i mean i wish it when i saw that pop up on twitter i i wish i could say i it fed my soul a little bit more, but I still just kind of felt sorry for Did you? you? Yeah, I did. I appreciate that. <laughs> Round one of this year's Film Spotting Madness did kick off earlier this week. New rounds open and close every Monday. Before getting into those round one matchups, we did want to run through some of the results from the Madness play-in round. We had 17 different matchups that helped us get down to that final group of 64. And no, we aren't going to run through them all here. If you want to see those complete results, just go to filmspotting.net slash madness. But we can recap a few of them here. Representing all superhero films, it seems, Logan one out over Black Panther and Avengers Endgame and Wonder Woman. How about that? I was a little bit surprised by that, but think it's possible that Endgame and Black Panther, with 29% and 27% respectively, might have divided that Marvel vote a little bit. And that's why Logan then emerged with 35%. And I know that Logan is a Marvel film, but not an MCU film. Yeah, that's right. We should just move on. Of course, I do know that that Wonder Woman, which got only 9%, is DC. In the Adam versus Josh matchup. Oh, yeah, this did not go well. My number two film of 2016, Sing Street, did obliterate Cedar Rapids. 75% to 25%. You know how I mentioned there are sometimes contraband copies of films that find their way (laughs) out of the tournament? There may be a hotel in Cedar Rapids, Iowa, that's going to have a copy of this movie stuffed in its uh, drawer there. Yeah. Good luck with that. In our comedy matchup, I really did feel confident that what we do in the shadows would beat pop star, never stop, never stopping. But I didn't think it would be by that wide of a margin, 76 to 24. Speaking of Ryan Johnson, Knives Out dominated The Last Jedi, 74 to 26. We also had a Jim Jarmusch showdown and this one was a little closer patterson won in a squeaker over only lovers left alive i think we paired three yeah we did three denis villeneuve films against each other so arrival blade runner 2049 and sicario and arrival probably not shocking took that no i think it's the right choice as well not that that matters finally our golden brick winners we took all of the films that have won the golden brick from the past decade obviously 10 movies subtracted the two that were already in Film Spotting Madness. They had already earned a spot. Those would be Dogtooth and The Act of Killing and pitted them against each other to see which one would move on. And wow, talk about close. We had five titles between 15% and 21%. So Mm. very close. Those titles were Columbus, Blue Ruin, The Last Black Man in San Francisco. Sean Baker's Tangerine, though, was the runner-up to Minding the Gap, the documentary from Bing Lu, does make the bracket only 16 votes, Josh. If you wow. wonder if your vote matters, only 16 votes is the margin for Minding the Gap over Sean Baker's Tangerine. But as we will hear in a second, Sean Baker shouldn't be too upset with us. He's got another film in the tourney. Mm-hmm. He'll come up again. Yeah. 
On to then round one, 32 matchups, not going to run through them. You can find them all at filmspotting.net slash madness. We hope you will participate. You will make your choices, select the movies that don't get thrown into the fire, at least not yet, the movies you think should advance. Instead, what we're going to do is just kind of each share the picks that were standouts to us, probably in terms of just how tough they were. Josh, what do you have? Yeah, should I go through all of these at once? I, I don't really have sure. them ranked. So, and I do like to do this kind of spur of the moment and, and cast my vote. So let's That's see true. what I've got. You even here. got the glasses out. For well, it. At, when you print out these brackets, it's like <laughs> minuscule. So, all right, my hardest five. Uh, a really tough one was the Florida Project versus Twelve Years a Slave. Um, I, I I know where I'm going to go because this is related to a film that may be on my top twenty of the decade list. Okay. So. It's the Florida Project. Spoiler there. Also, Dunkirk versus Toy Story 3. I saw someone, it might have been on Twitter. Um, I mean, this gave me a lot of pain, but then I think they pointed out, you know, there are other Toy Story films. There's only one Dunkirk. So using that logic, um, yeah, I can vote for Dunkirk. Okay. The Master versus Winter's Bone. Um, This is kind of spoiling a lot of our lists, but uh, there is a PTA on my list. It's not that one. It's not the master. So although that is very difficult, I already talked about Winter's Bone making my top 20. So that's my vote there. Inside Lewin Davis and Patterson. Um, Both quiet. Yeah. Maybe not hangout films, but introspective films. Which about enigmatic kind of loner artist are yeah, you going yeah. to let advance, I, Josh? I'm just, I'm, I'm going to circle Patterson and move on because oh, I don't man. want to talk about it anymore. You better because I don't want to talk about it. <laughs> the act of killing my fifth hardest one versus take shelter. Um, you know, act of killing made my top 20 as we've already seen. Take shelter, spoiler, did not. This is very difficult, but I am going to go with act of killing. What okay. were your tough ones? So my toughest was the one you just finished with, the act of killing yeah. versus take shelter. And spoilers, as we get through our top 20, you'll understand why that one was so hard. My runner-up, actually, I've got First Reformed, Paul Schrader versus Martin Scorsese's The Irishman. I've gone back and forth on how I feel about which movie should advance. I've gone back and forth on how I feel our listeners are going to vote. Sure. I just really don't know and i'll give sam credit for this one as we look at the brackets you will start to see sometimes it works out that there are some nice little themes in terms of the two movies that are squaring off against each other and you get that a little bit with patterson and inside Mm -hmm. lewin davis and obviously you think about first reformed and the irishman in terms of that spiritual malaise and that kind of sense of decay and the search for and probably not finding redemption in both of those main characters, they are really of a pair, and it's tough to pick because I well, love them both. And just pitting Schrader against Scorsese too. There you, you go. Know? So, um, and I wonder here if, for me, the the recency situation maybe is why I was able to vote for First Reformed because I'm still as much as I love the Irishman and put it on my top ten list. I'm kind of like not quite sure where its place ultimately is. Yeah. I'm pretty confident about First Reform, Trader's Best. Yeah, and that is how I ultimately voted. The one I'm calling You Monsters, just to paraphrase or to steal a quote from a lot of our listeners in the comments, Before Midnight versus Moonrise Kingdom is one I wanted to strangle Sam for coming up with because I was really excited about potentially at least giving Wes Anderson one title in Moonrise Kingdom that 
was going to advance a round or two for yeah. me. Yeah. I love Moonrise Kingdom. And then he pitted it against the Before Trilogy and Linklater. I know the other ones may or may not exist, depending on what universe uh-huh. and what <laughs> what model we are following here in the Matrix. But I can't pick Moonrise Kingdom over Before Midnight. So. Yeah, I was surprised that was actually that hard for it you. Was, I'm glad it to was. hear it. That's how I feel about that Anderson film. One I'm calling Sneaky Tough is Roma versus Arrival. Hmm. And I say that because it snuck up on me. I would have thought that Roma, which was not only in my top 10, but I think was in my top two or three of 2018, going against a Denis Villeneuve film that I didn't have in my top 10, though it was in my 11 through 20. But Arrival is a movie. The more I reflect on the decade, the more credit I give that film for the unique experience I had with it, the way the movie processes grief the way the movie suggests we as humans process grief everything about the nonlinear structure in terms of matching that bizarre form of communication we see taking place in the movie i won't get into it any more than that it's a film i'm really eager to watch again and i think for that reason this was a tough choice for me gave the edge to roma ultimately Mm -hmm. but really close and then finally the ones that i'll just say weren't as easy for me to choose as you might expect. I also had Dunkirk versus Toy Story 3 in there. I went with Toy Story 3, though. The Wolf of Wall Street, you know I love it, but it's up against David Fincher's Gone Girl. And I feel strongly about both films, so it was tough to go with. Where are you going? But I did. Okay. And then finally, Moonlight versus The Writer, one that Mm. almost surely Moonlight is going to come out decisively with the victory, It should, in terms of if you're looking back on the past decade, Moonlight has to be in the conversation among the best films of the decade, wherever you put it, whatever rank you give it. And the writer is this smaller little film, a Golden Brick finalist for us a few years ago. But I just love that film so much that it wasn't a slam dunk that I was picking Moonlight. I did pick Moonlight, but I thought about it. Boy, the writer showed up here or there on that film comment compendium of people just, you know, 20 to 30 people listing. I was pleasantly surprised to see it there. Yeah, Chloe Zhao, the filmmaker behind the writer with nearly 2000 votes already in. Some of these contests are more or less decided, but several are still very close. And we want to let you know that not only can you vote, not only can you pick which movies you think should move on, but you can for the first time predict your bracket. Instead of just listening to how I'm doing or Josh, Sam, Mike is doing, you can participate. We already have over 250 entries. Really? Now, I didn't tell any of those people that whoever comes in dead last, they too are going to have to watch <laughs> next year's Adam Sandler's well, Netflix movie. That should be assumed. And I mean. there's no prize for winning. Actually, that's not true. Unlike the four of us, yeah. our listeners are going to get a prize. What? That's crap. I know. We're going to give them a film spotting prize pack. Maybe we'll come up with one for a runner up as well, but I'm sure we'll throw in at least a t-shirt. If you want to participate and you know you do, go to filmspotting.net slash madness. That is where you can vote and where you can fill out your bracket with your predictions. We'll highlight a couple of the ones here that are closest, Josh, that before midnight versus Moonrise Kingdom, you monsters battle. They're trading leads. It's separated by fewer than 10 votes. Oh, man. I'm just trying to look here where I predicted that one would end up. (laughs) (sighs) While you're doing that, how about Carol versus John Wick? And if you think Kate Blanchett's afraid of John Wick, 
Carol is up for anything. It's also somehow virtually tied. We got this from Patrick Najar, who said Kate Blanchett and Rooney Mara might as well have kicked a few puppies because John Wick is going to burn their swanky <laughs> apartments to the ground. It's getting violent. <laughs> Sarah Polly's stories we tell versus Olivier Asayas's personal shopper. Another one fewer than 20 votes separating them as we record, Josh. And Alex Garland's Ex Machina came up against Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. Not quite as close as the others, we'll say, but still a painful one for some listeners. Here's Jake Meltzer. This is one of two matchups in the first round that sent me into absolute existential panic. I could make a compelling argument that Spider-Verse is the best superhero movie of all time, but I could also reasonably argue that Ex Machina is the best sci-fi film of the decade for Oscar Isaac and his dance moves alone. Ultimately, I voted for Spider-Verse because not only have I never seen a superhero movie like it before, I have never seen an animated movie like it, one that so seamlessly blends different animation styles and embraces its comic book roots. Add to that an incredible cast and an emotionally resonant story and a phenomenal soundtrack. Ex Machina is incredible, but Spider-Verse will inspire generations of kids to come. He makes a very compelling case, but not so compelling, I think, that either of us, Josh, are going to change our votes for Ex Machina. No way. We'll see how listeners do with that. We'll close with two more bits of feedback here. Eric Howder writing in about Mad Max Fury Road versus Logan, and here it is, you monsters. Right out of the gate, you put the two greatest pulp films of the 2010s up against each other. I see you. I see the little themes you are working with here in these individual matchups. We all see what you're doing here. This strange annual social experiment undermining our spirits and forcing us to choose between our favorites. Some sort of next-level psychological monkey torture. I pick Logan, by the way. Even though I only saw it once and I dragged my entire family back to the theater so I could see Mad Max Fury Road a second time in the same day... Why? To defy you and to stand against <laughs> the madness. Also, Logan has that little girl that chops people up with her hand claws. Automatic win. Hey, we all have our logic for making these decisions. I think Eric and that little girl might be the only people voting for Logan. We'll see how the results turn out. One more note here from Adam Wells. I entered this year's madness with an open mind, fully expecting to just relax and cast my votes like a sane person would do. The first three matchups were easy. Number one, Fury Road versus Logan. Logan is a fine attempt to subvert the superhero genre, but Fury Road is a number one seed for a reason. Number two, The Florida Project versus 12 Years a Slave. 12 Years is one of the most harrowing experiences I've ever had in the theater, but The Florida Project is the best movie from either the first or second best movie year of the decade, 2017. Number three, The Favorite versus Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. The Favorite has a lot to love, but it's the most toothless Lanthimos movie. And Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is as rewatchable as any 2010s movie. Then I got to a separation versus Meek's cutoff, and my face completely turned like the moment in The Lighthouse when Willem Dafoe learns Robert Pattinson doesn't like his cooking. Am I supposed to eliminate Asghar Farhadi's intensely observed masterpiece? Do I root against Kelly Reichert's subversive survival masterpiece? As I'm writing this, I haven't even bothered to look over the rest of the remaining matchups because I will be stuck on Meek's cutoff versus a separation for hours. So I can only imagine what the rest of this bracket will do to me when I get to it. Thanks, I guess. I guess. Adam is suffering from madness paralysis. Yeah, no, I've seen that. I've seen lots of people mention, and I've suffered from it myself, where you kind of easily make your way through four or five votes and then you just hit a wall on one. (laughs) You just pause on one and you say, you know what, maybe I'll just set that aside and I'll get back to it sometime. I guess. Thank you for all the feedback. Thank you to everyone who is participating in the madness to recap round one of film spotting madness, your picks and predictions. That's open until Monday, March 2nd. 
Monday, March 2nd at 11 a.m. Central Time. Round two voting will open at noon. If you want to be notified of that, you can subscribe to the Film Spotting newsletter at filmspotting.net slash newsletter. But all the madness action occurs over at filmspotting.net slash madness. Now, Josh, you're a basketball guy, so you're familiar with the NIT? Uh, I believe that would be college. I, I stick to the NBA. I know, but you've heard of the NIT of it, yeah. tournament, the National it. Invitation Tourney, mm-hmm. where a bunch of the best teams in the country who didn't make the big dance, they get their own little tournament to be part of. Well, we might be bringing you the FIT tournament, <laughs> the Film Spotting Invitation oh, Tournament. Oh, my. Are you kidding me? <laughs> because Sam and I can't resist. Have you, and, also, have you also found a way to double and expand time? No. No, and the time space continuum. And it's going to be difficult. But of course, we did have this master list, Sam and myself, of all the films we were trying to whittle down to the 90, actually, that made our initial bracket, if you included the play. And so we've got a lot of extra titles that we know many listeners love. We've been hearing from them on social media. We've been hearing from them via email and on Letterboxd, people commenting on the movies they can't believe didn't make the tournament. Now, we might include them in this secondary tournament but guess what it's going to only be for film spotting family members on patreon so right now those family members are getting ad-free episodes they're getting early downloads they're getting live show pre-sales and discounts and a monthly bonus show we just dropped that first bonus show earlier this week an eight isn't enough from 84 review of beverly hills cop that was fun it was fun and i think if you have a chance to partake, you will enjoy that conversation, but you can only get it by supporting us on Patreon and becoming a family member. And that's where this extra bit of film spotting madness fun will probably occur. I think we're going to make it only for the family members and we're going to see how the tournament shakes out, give away a prize pack over there as well. Is there going to be a punishment for the loser? Is there going to be a prediction bracket you know what? for this? Let's come up with it. Okay. We'll yeah. have to come up with that. I think that. that should definitely be a part of it as well. So the bonus shows too that we're doing monthly, they're not going to be the same sort of show each time. We're going to switch up the approach, the topic. Yeah. And so next month we are doing a We Were Wrong Once show, a 2005 edition, basically looking back at an early show review and saying, how does it hold up now? Do our opinions change? Have they shifted? And we are also giving, with each of these bonus shows, family members an option to vote for the specific yeah, film that's to right. be discussed. We'll talk about what you tell us to talk about. So for We Were Wrong Once 2005 edition, the options are Millions, Sin City, or Star Wars Episode Three: Revenge of the Sith. Mm-hmm. Now, this was well before my time with the show. Right. So really, it's good we're going to bring on Sam, producer yeah. Sam Van Hogger, I mean, to that's revisit maybe. the review that you guys gave one of these films. That's maybe the biggest benefit of being a family member. I know we have a lot of more recent listeners that don't go back to 2005-07, but you've heard his voice on the show a few times here over the years, including our live show at the Music Box, and it's going to be great to have him as part of these discussions, especially going back to reviews that neither of us have certainly revisited since they were taped back in 2005. Now, I will go ahead and say this. Unless maybe a 1,000 new people sign up for the Film Spotting family on Patreon. And I welcome that to happen, by the way. But unless that happens and they happen to all be or a good percentage of them happen to be Danny Boyle, completists and fanatics, Millions is not going to win. Yeah, it's not looking like as we expected. This is going to come down to either Sin City, 
which I loved and Sam hated back on our fifth episode in 2005, or Star Wars Episode Three: Revenge of the Sith, which I don't remember Sam's star rating. I think it was maybe only about two and a half stars mixed on it. Didn't really care for it. I loved it. You're the world's biggest fan of that yeah, movie. Apparently. So <laughs> but we even like it more than me. Yeah. We could see whether or not I feel like 2005 me was totally insane or not. Probably true. Or Sin City is going to win. You get to decide. The support so far since we launched this about three or four weeks ago has been really heartwarming. We appreciate all of the support that we're getting. Wanted to share this bit of feedback from Jeffrey, and he's getting the film spotting nickname as well, being a family member. Jeffrey, my theme song is Silencio Sangio. He writes, hey, Adam, Josh, Sam, and Joe. I've been a longtime listener and have paid the dealer in the past, though frequently didn't remember to do it regularly. Patreon is a great way to have that happen automatically, and the bonus content and ad-free episodes are nice little perks. For me, though, I don't really need the episodes any earlier, since having them appear on Fridays and listening later that afternoon on my way home from work will still remain my kick off the weekend ritual. Also, after hearing you guys promote Patreon for several weeks, what pushed me over the edge to join was the knowledge that I could add the film spotting family feed to my existing podcast app. It was surprisingly simple and integrates into my podcast app like any other podcast. Thanks for all the work you guys do. So that's true. A key feature of Patreon is that it's very easy to get those bonus episodes. You don't have to go to the Patreon site to listen. You can just add that feed to whatever podcatcher that you use and listen to it like you listen to film spotting or any other show. Yeah, it's really easy. That was, that was a relief. I, I do it for another podcast that I'm a patron of. And yeah, to see it be able to pop up in there like everything else is awfully convenient. You can find out just how convenient it is by going to patreon.com slash filmspotting or go to filmspotting.net for links and more info. Also at our website, that's where we like to give away movie passes for our Chicago area listeners. You can get an admit to pass right now to a Wednesday, March 4th screening of The Way Back, starring Ben Affleck as a down-on-his-luck high school basketball coach that's going to be at the Arclight Theater in Chicago. And truly, that's the only one that's up right now, but just over the past two weeks, we've had four or five up at a time. So lots of movie passes to see those movies in advance and for free. The link is filmspotting.net slash events. Now, Adam, when I was uh, scouring through Letterboxd and looking, came across your um, feed there, I you know, felt bad for you when I saw Murder Mystery pop right. up that you had to watch that. But I also noticed you fit in Once We're Brothers, which is currently playing in limited release, including here in Chicago. So a music doc right up your alley. Good one? Not just a music doc that's up my alley, but a doc about the band. So right in my wheelhouse. I'm a huge fan of this group. I read the drummer LeVon Helms biography. I've listened to a good chunk of Robbie Robertson's audiobook, Testimony. And this movie covers similar terrain to testimony in terms of it's definitely about Robbie. I mean, he's the only living member of the band besides Garth Hudson, who doesn't want to talk about anything really lives still in upstate New York. And I think he was interviewed by the director, Daniel Rohr, for this movie, but declined to actually have that footage be used in the film. But it covers Robbie's early life growing up in Canada on an Indian reservation. And then at a very young age, in his early teens, really picking up the guitar and becoming quite a good guitar player, being just so taken with rock and roll that he left home, I think at 16, to go play with Ronnie Hawkins, this traveling musician. And eventually some more Canadians would join the band and this group that would eventually 
be known as the band, became Bob Dylan's backup band. And a good chunk of the film is devoted to talking about that tour, that infamous tour with Dylan, where he went electric with these guys and got booed by pretty much every crowd he played in front of who wanted him to still be the folk artist, the important folk singer that he was. People like me who have followed the band for a while, it's going to seem fitting, I suppose, that Robbie is doing all the talking, even though that's really the only way it could have been done with this film. The movie is called Once We're Brothers, Robbie Robertson and the band, because the story of the group really post their breakup in the 80s has been the acrimony that existed between Robbie and the other members, whether it was justified or not, whether Robbie's really a villain or not. He was the most successful post the band. He scored movies for Scorsese, worked with Scorsese, obviously the whole group did on The Last Waltz, which is also covered in this documentary. He's the guy who wrote the majority of the music. So got the publishing royalties, and that was really the brunt of the hostility that the other members felt towards him. But one of the things the movie gets into is that those other members were all suffering from such severe drug problems, including getting really into heroin, that they had largely dropped out of the process of writing any of the songs or being part of that collaboration and kind of just showed up when they had to record something and otherwise were nodding out in the corner. Now, there might be people who say, well, that's Robbie's version of it as well. And that isn't really the truth. But it's clear from the beginning, we're getting Robbie's take on the band's legacy. And for me, I love the music. I love those voices of LeVon Helm, Richard Manuel and Rick Danko. And there's a point in there where we see them playing I Shall Be Released. And it just kind of breaks my heart. So it's definitely something that people who are into the band like me should watch whether or not maybe someone like you josh who probably hasn't listened to as much or doesn't really care about them should watch i don't know i'll say that there's a reason why this group has become mythologized in pop culture and we hear from clapton who wanted to be in the band he loved them so much and we hear from springsteen and other artists in the documentary and even some of my favorite bands now like jason isbel has a song called danko manual and the counting crows have a song called if i could give all my love to you parentheses richard manual is dead they they've lived on 30 40 years after they really were in their prime and it's because that music is timeless so i do encourage people to see once we're brothers yeah and that is playing right now in chicago and a few other theaters around the country. A quick note here before we move on, and we are going to talk about the film spotting tour that is going to kick off with a couple more dates, including one in June. But before that gets underway, we are going to have a film spotting meetup. I'll be doing a film spotting meetup at least in April. And this is the fourth year I'll be doing it in Boulder, Colorado. Each time I've gone out to lead Ebert Interruptus at the Conference on World Affairs, I'm able to get together with a bunch of listeners. Some of them come to Interruptus and some of them just drop in for the meetup that we have nearby. And it's great to be able to see the same faces now. This will be my fourth year and to see some of those same people. So if you're at all interested in doing that or coming to interrupt us as well, it's going to be April 6th through 10. This is at University of Colorado Boulder. And I'm really excited about this year's film because Agnes Varda came up at our 15th anniversary show here in Chicago. Adam Sam named her as his spiritual guide at the movies. And we've done a marathon on her. We're huge fans. So we're going to show for Interruptus 
Cleo from five to seven. Great movie. It wasn't part of our marathon. No. Probably one of her- Because we had her, seen it. We had both seen it and maybe one of her better known films, but I still think it's it's kind of the best French New Wave film you vaguely heard of. It certainly doesn't have the stature of some of the other French New Wave films, and it absolutely deserves to be considered alongside them. So the way Interruptus works, if people are unfamiliar with it, this is something Roger Ebert started decades ago at this conference. We will watch Cleo from five to seven straight through on Monday, April 6th. And then Tuesday through Thursday, we get together again in the afternoon and just break it down scene by scene, frame by frame. If we have to, anyone can shout, stop, make an observation, ask a question. It's one of my movie highlights of the year each time I've been able to do it. So that's April 6th through 10. Likely we'll have the meetup that Thursday night, the final night of Interruptus. But if you want to get those details when I do finalize that, Go to filmspotting.net slash events. We'll put it there. Or otherwise, if you want to follow me on Twitter or Facebook at Larson on Film, I'll be updating info on it there as well. I'm jealous of everybody who gets to be part of that. I get to spend enough time with you, but seeing that film up on the big screen. Yeah. And being able to dissect it does sound like great fun. I'm also jealous of an experience a listener had, Adam Kreps. We just got this email earlier today as we're taping. And, you know, it was fantastic that we had Sam our producer and co-founder of Film Spotting, join us on stage at the Music Box. We had Michael Phillips for some real juice, some star power. But maybe we should have upped the budget a little bit and maybe had our sights set even higher. Adam writes in, thanks to Film Spotting, I saw another great film I may not have otherwise. Your discussions of Rio Bravo in recent weeks, not to mention Michael Phillips' stumpy impression, got me to a screening of it last night in L.A. The amazing Angie Dickinson introduced the film. She shared many anecdotes, my favorite of which was that the thermometer hit 127 degrees the day they shot the scene after Feathers tossed the plant through the window and the subsequent shootout. In this scene, Feathers feels faint and is escorted inside. After filming, the onset doctor checked on Ms. Dickinson because several members of the crew had already succumbed to the extreme heat, and he believed she was suffering the effects as well. Ms. Dickinson took it as a huge compliment to her acting abilities. <laughs> Thanks again for all that you do, and I look forward to seeing you when the film spotting tour comes to L.A. So I don't know if that's just wishful thinking on Adam's part. We have alluded in a few places to there being an L.A. tour stop. As we're talking right now, we can't confirm the L.A. tour date or location, but it is coming. It's looking good. We're going to hit L.A., and we have one more that, by the time people hear this, we might have on our events page. We're also coming to the last great American city I still can't believe I haven't been to. So the tour, for me, is really just also checking a box of finally getting (laughs) to Austin, Texas. You're going to love it. That's going to happen in August. And as I said, don't have all the details to give you now, but by the time you hear this, they might be up at our events page. We're coming to Austin. We're coming to L.A. The 15th anniversary tour does roll on. The one that we have all the details for and that you can buy tickets for right now is in New York City, Brooklyn, actually. We're going to be there Friday, June 19th at the Bell House. And how about this guest list? I mean, okay, it's not Angie Dickinson, but maybe you'd like to hear from Slate's Dana Stevens. How about the New York Times' Aisha Harris? Maybe Matt Singer from Screen Crush, Allison Wilmore from BuzzFeed, both formerly of the Film Spotting SVU podcast. Sam is going to be joining us as well. So that is quite a roster. Can't wait to meet up with those folks and get their thoughts on. I don't know. We've been batting around maybe the best films of the year so far discussion. Yeah, at this that point. one won't be a screening because there isn't 
a screen at the Bell House to use. It will be more of a traditional podcast, probably just a top five with those guests. And not only all those people you mentioned, but Griffin Newman, who was here on the show for Toy Story 3 and Top 5 Toy Story Moments with me last year. He, of course, from the Blank Check podcast. I think I've convinced him to at least come to the VIP nice. meetup beforehand. So if you want to hang out with Griffin as well, you can do that. All that information, if you want to get tickets, is at filmspotting.net slash events. All right. We heard listener Jake Meltzer vote against Ex Machina in Film Spotting Madness just a little bit ago. I'm going to correct that when we come back and name our top 11 through 15 films of the 2010s. Stay with us. What makes me think about you? What makes me think about your smile? What makes me think about you? The shape of a cloud, the color of the sky that makes me think about you. Hello, Film Spotting crew. This is Sean Means from Salt Lake City. I wanted to put in a word for what I think is the best movie of the 2010s, and that's Ben Zeitlin's Beasts of the Southern Wild. I was was in one of the early audiences for this movie at the 2012 Sundance Film Festival. By the time I saw it, there was word trickling out about how many standing ovations this movie had received in its first screening. And when I saw it, I understood why those first audiences were so captivated by this warm-hearted story of a little girl named Hush Puppy living with her father in a part of the Mississippi Delta called the bathtub and what happens when ill health removes her father from the scene. Ben Zeitlin's movie feels like a found artifact, a wholly unique piece of folk art assembled from junkyard scraps and fallen tree branches. But it also comes from people who we almost never see in movies, real people scraping by with whatever they have at hand, not just surviving, but forming full lives amid the flotsam and jetsam that floated down the river. The girl who plays Hush Puppy, Quavagene Wallace, is so natural and so expressive. It's one of the best child performances I've seen in my, in my life. And the score by Ben Romer and Ben Zeitlin swells with such emotion that it puts me back in that place whenever I hear it. Having seen Beasts of the Southern Wild, I think that for as long as I live, I will know that there was a girl named Hush Puppy and that she lived in the bathtub. Sean, thank you, but also <laughs> you're making me feel really terrible about not putting Beasts of the Southern Wild on my top 20 of the decade list. It's, it's I don't know, maybe 21. It was my favorite film the year it came out. And Sean hit exactly why. All of those reasons I completely agree with. Um What's maybe even more hurtful is I just came before recording, Adam, from Wendy, which is writer-director Ben Zeitlin's long-anticipated follow-up to Beasts of the Southern Wild. And, and, you know, it's – I don't know that it should have any influence on whether or not Beasts should be on this list. But I can tell you if I had come out of it feeling like I did about Beasts, I might have pulled – a switcheroo here at the last moment. Uh, I liked Wendy, but I think just real briefly I would say – it's probably only going to appeal to the people who really loved Beasts of the Southern Wild. I don't think it's going to win anybody over to um, Zeitlin's 
aesthetic or style. It's playing with a lot of the same elements um, in some occasionally wonderful ways, but in some ways that um, it feels like maybe not an entirely finished product. So Hmm. for whatever that's worth, that's a little bit on Wendy, which is coming out, I think, in the next week or two. But Beast was one of the most unique experiences at the movies I had last decade. Um, I have not revisited it in the last couple of years. And this is one of those cases. If I had maybe watched it last night, it'd be on mm. this list. But can we just move on from Beast? Because yeah. I feel bad and get to, my number, away. get to my number 15. Yeah, let's hear it. All right. Here's what did make the list at 15 from the year 2017 is The Florida Project. Now, this is one, yes, I've watched more than once. I don't know when the last time was, but there probably hasn't been a month that's gone by in the last couple of years where I haven't thought about The Florida Project in some way. Uh, This is Sean Baker, the director and writer here. A golden brick winner made good, made Tangerine in 2015, and then followed up with The Florida Project. Follows a single mother and her difficult, I think we can say, six-year-old daughter who live in this week-by-week budget hotel, motel, that's outside of Disney World. Boy, you know, Willem Dafoe here as Bobby, the manager of this motel, he's maybe my answer to Sam's question when we did last week, our top 10 performers of the decade. And he asked if there was a performance that you might place as the best of the decade. And I think I stole his refined suggestion, his pick, but maybe it's Willem Dafoe here as Bobby. Hmm. I just keep coming back to this long suffering, well-meaning, but in over his head in so many ways manager. And I think about that Maybe the last time we see him when he's he hasn't been able to help some of the main characters in the ways he wanted to, and he walks past the washing machines that are there outside at the motel, and there's another resident who's sitting on it and complains that they're broken again. And he just kind of sighs and makes this promise that I'm going to fix it. I'm going to fix it because it's one thing he can do. And, and just the, the the weariness he has within, but the persistence in trying to make these lives a little bit better is just, you know, something that keeps coming back to me. It's only second week of the summer and there's already been a dead fish in the pool. We were doing an experiment. We were trying to get it back alive. That wasn't my and, idea. And water balloons thrown at tourists? You can't f*** with tourists. They didn't tip us. Are you serious? No. Oh my God, this is unacceptable. I failed as a mother, Mooney. You've disgraced me. Harley. Yeah, Mom, you're disgraced. And I'm going to talk to Ashley, by the way. When your friend puts you in charge of her kid, that kid becomes your responsibility. You ain't taking responsibility. And you got that one, too? She's from Futureland, right? Oh, whatevs. You got to relax, my man. You going to redo my expense reports with your whatevs? I think this movie is also convicting, which is why I think about it so much. I'm left aching for this little girl that we witness, but I'm also left wondering about similar people that I've driven by, not thought about on my own way to Disney World. And so as someone, you know, as a middle-class person watching a movie like this, it really does convict you and it, and it haunts you and sticks with you. It sticks to me in ways that I think have been good for me in the last couple of years. Hmm. And so that's that's why the Florida Project got on this list, and I've got it here at 15. Yeah, I wish I had given it a little more thought only because not the pick itself, which I definitely thought about as one of the best of the decade. But I know I recently watched something. It was a TV show or it was another movie that dealt with this hidden homeless, as they're often called, the people who live sort of month to month mm-hmm. in these motels. And I felt like 
I had so much background and perspective on them that wasn't even in the material itself just because of sure. the Florida project. Yeah, I can see that. Yeah. My number 15 film of the decade is the movie that I had as my number one film of 2018. It's Barry Jenkins' If Beale Street Could Talk. And I get it. Moonlight is probably the better pick, or it's probably the pick that really does deserve to be in a top 20 or any list of the best films of the decade because it's so beloved, including by me. It was in my top 10 of that year, but also because it probably seems more formally ambitious in terms of having three different actors portray the same man at three different times in his life and some of the other choices that Jenkins makes. But I look at if Beale Street could talk in terms of this movie set back in 1970s Harlem, an adaptation of James Baldwin, trying to incorporate that language, but also telling this story that's on this huge scale with so many characters and the emotional complexity of these relationships within this period piece. It's about these two families who are brought together by a relationship. It's a love story, a 19-year-old girl, Tish, and her fiancé, who goes by the name Fani. And we've talked about this a little bit, movies that feel like they're relevant to the 2010s, that they're about something that was a prominent issue, a prominent injustice in our decade. And here we've got a story set back in the 70s, as I mentioned, but it's about a black man who's arrested for a crime he didn't commit. And the movie really is about the futility of the justice system, really, to help these families trying to right that wrong. And I think about Jenkins' eye and the use of color and light in this film and the production design the way it invites us all to observe and to go back to my word for some of these picks to connect with characters and a story and an experience that is foreign, obviously, to me. And the beauty of this film in a movie that otherwise just makes you ache for these people and these characters. And this is the point where I could probably just go into a litany of the standout sequences in this film. There really are so many, and some of them are longer sequences, and some of them are just images that Jenkins gives us. And I think it's pretty clear here so far that he's one of the best filmmakers of this past decade to emerge just looking at these two films. I can't wait to see what he does next. Yeah, if Beale Street could talk, there's there's almost like a sense of resistance to the beauty in it because you're you're right there's so much pain in the movie but that doesn't that doesn't mean that he is not going to also turn an eye towards what is beautiful at the same time right and he manages that balance so well um, it's I, romantic it's a romantic yeah, not, story and i think not a wrong word to use and as i said during our review of it originally and it came up subsequently on end of the year roundtables and scenes of the year at our rap party, I think showing us that beauty the way he does only amplifies the heartache. So I had a few titles we'll get to that are somewhat like that. They're maybe the um, the 1A of a director from the decade, but for some reason I felt a stronger connection to it and put it on my list, which makes me wonder, did you limit yourself to one film from a director? Or do you have, without saying, if it spoils something, do you have cases where a director is more than one film on your top 20. I will say that my first go at the top 20 did have two films from the same filmmaker. Okay. So four films between two different directors. Got it, got it. And yeah. I did force myself to go down to only one by each director. Yeah, I did too. All right. At number 14, I have got Roma from 2018. And Roma is interesting because it exists in my memory as this staggering monument. Okay. This massive cinematic achievement. 
But then I start thinking about it in detail, and I'm surprised to remember that it's really quiet. It's very patient, incredibly personal. And I think that combination there is this movie's magic. Grand filmmaking in service of this granular story. It centers on an indigenous domestic worker in the 1970s in Mexico, just kind of a picture of her little life, and then also at the same time, the disintegrating life of the family that she works for. Yalitza Aparicio plays this domestic worker, and it really is She's a first-timer here, and it's one of the performances of the decade. The thing that astonishes me about this performance is not just its naturalness, which I think we often look to for first-timers, but the range she brings to this over a wealth of experiences and emotions that this character encounters. The movie is based on the childhood memories of director Alfonso Cuaron, and he seems to have just burrowed into these memories, even as he, as I said, cast this vast cinematic palette. He's managing to do both things at once. I I just, I think this was either the opening scene for the year that I picked, or maybe my scene of the year, that image of the tile floor, Mm -hmm. uh, the water from Cleo's mop nearby washing over this tile and then revealing the reflection of the sky overhead. So much of the film has this sense of the mundane as the miraculous, and it is a gorgeous piece of art that is not at all intimidating or pretentious or or, or has that sort of element to it, um, even though it has that stature for me. Yeah, it's a wonderful film. I'm glad to see it made your list. I think you'll be glad to see this film make my list at number 14. It is a movie that stars my actress of the decade, as we shared last week on the show. That's Michelle Williams, and it's Kelly Reichert's 2010 Meeks Cutoff. We also had a chance to see earlier the movie First Cow, yes, her latest. And in fact, we plan to have Kelly Reichert on the show. I think we're both going to talk to her. She's been on once before talking with me about her movie, Certain Women. I still think Meek's Cutoff is her masterpiece. We haven't talked about First Cow at all, and I certainly won't give away any thoughts on it here before we get into it with Reichert. But if you had any doubts about Reichert as one of the best filmmakers of the past 10 years or so, and I didn't really, you definitely shouldn't have them, I would say, after seeing First Cow. And that movie is a movie that struck me as a parable, We'll get into that a lot more. Absolutely. And Meek's Cutoff, similarly, I think, is an allegory that has, if not religious implications, and it might, it definitely has existential implications. This story set in 1845 where you have three families who are on this wagon train trying to seek a better life out west. There's some overlap there with some of the characters and situations in First Cow. And they hire a guide to help them get there, a guide who claims to know a shortcut, but leads them on some really treacherous terrain. It's such a quiet movie, and yet the stakes of it are so high. (laughs) When you know that they're running out of food, and you know how treacherous the terrain is, and you know that what happens if they don't come across civilization soon? What happens if they don't get to where they're trying to go? That you are locked into every gesture and you're locked into every sound. I think about still, it's been 10 years, but I think about the sound of the wagon wheels turning Mm -hmm. in this film and that steady almost groan from them. And I love films like this one that put a demand on the viewer in terms of your senses. It's really about what you are seeing and hearing, and it's not about 
explication. It's not the movie just bestowing information on you. And we are accompanying these families on this journey for better or worse. And speaking of better or worse, and again, maybe this is heightened in my mind because we just saw First Cow, but this is a movie about the American spirit. And this idea of manifest destiny, of characters trying to make their own way in the world and all of the rewards that come with that, but also the costs. There are few rewards in Meek's cutoff, and Reichert's films really are mostly about the costs. And all of the Reichert films that I've seen, I haven't seen River of Grass, but all the ones I've seen all take place in the Pacific Northwest. And there are times in her films where that landscape is gorgeous. And I think that's primarily because that's how the characters are experiencing it. And sometimes there's this sense of nature as this sustaining, nurturing force. But a lot of times it's bleak and it's unforgiving. And a movie like Meek's Cutoff also makes us ask, okay, we see what nature is capable of, but but what's in our nature? That's the question I think she's always turning back on us. What compromises are we willing to make? And are some of those compromises compromises of the soul? And If that doesn't sound relevant, despite the movie being set in the mid-1800s and coming out in 2010, I don't know what does. We're not lost. We're just finding our way. I certainly hope so. We're going to make it all right. Oh, you don't need to patronize me, Mr. Meek. Well, now now I think you're flirting with me, ma'am. You don't know much about women, do you, Stephen Meek? I I know something or other. If you say so. Well, I know women are different from men. I know that much. Well, I'll tell you the difference if you care to hear it. I don't doubt you will. Women. Women are created on the principle of chaos. The chaos of creation, disorder, bringing new things into the world. Men are created on the principle of destruction. It's like cleansing, order, and destruction. You think I'm wrong? You can tell me. Chaos and destruction, the two genders always had it. Chaos and destruction. I am thrilled that Meek's Cutoff is on your list, and I will have more to say about it myself. As a matter of fact, I'll have more to say about it, not even on this episode, but uh, when we get up to our higher picks. All right, my number 13, it's my PTA. Adam, can you guess which Paul Thomas Anderson (laughs) film I only limited myself to one. Which one made the cut? Well, you didn't somehow put Punch Drunk Love in a time machine and transport it to the 2010s, did <laughs> oh, you? Oh, if only. I wouldn't put it past you. If only. No, <laughs> I went I went with Phantom Thread. And it's funny you bring that up because this movie, which I watched within the last month, again, because I had, a, I had an instinct. I feel like it's weird with the master. I feel like I know that I don't know the master. As much as I love it. If that makes any sense, mm-hmm. I feel like I could probably watch it a hundred more times and it would still be a bit opaque to me. And sure. that's fine. That's okay. Have you only seen it once? No, no, I've seen it. Okay. I've probably seen it maybe three times. Okay. Um, so so I kind of know where I stand there, but I thought Phantom Thread, you, This it just sounds so fun whenever I think about watching it again. So I did. And it is challenging. Punch Drunk Love, I got to say, as my favorite Paul Thomas Anderson. Um, I'm not sure if it's his best, but um, it's it's challenging Punch Drunk for my favorite. And it's good enough that the differences in those definitions are negligible. It's just so beautiful. I mean, those dresses, Mark Bridges is the costume designer and how integral they are to plot and character. Uh, I love that. The Johnny Greenwood score. I'm not a huge 
movie score listener in, in terms of listening to them outside of the film experience. I will from now, from here or there, but I know a lot of people just love to do that and work to that music. This one, though, this one I put on every once in a while. Uh, again, and it just works so well with the film itself. There is, in this movie, there's a constant pull between, and I don't know if danger is the right word, but intrigue and romance. And it's maybe this is why it's PTA's Hitchcock film, right? But it's almost like what he's done here is made Hitchcock with feeling in a way that uh, even Hitchcock's most romantic movies somehow don't quite hit this note hmm. that he manages to with Phantom Thread. And it is so funny. Asparagus. Is this all about your asparagus? No, it's not now? about what? asparagus. What the hell is it about? Are you a special agent sent here to ruin my evening and possibly my entire Why life? Why are you so rude to me? Why are you talking to me is like this? Is this my house? This is my house, yes, isn't it? Is, is this house. my house? Of course it's your house. Or did somebody drop me on foreign soil behind enemy lines? You I'm surrounded on all sides. It's you who brought me here. When the hell did this happen? Who are you? Do you have a gun? You here to kill me? Do you have a gun? Stop it! Where's your gun? Stop being a Where's child. Where's your gun? Stop. It's just so, so funny. I can't stop giggling at Daniel Day-Lewis's fussiness as this 1950s fashion designer. I think I recognize something in it that uh, makes me able to laugh at it in a way that I might laugh at myself. If, if given these resources and left to my own devices, I, I could head this direction that this guy heads. And so there's something amusing about watching him indulge in that. And then getting to watch Vicky Creeps yeah. get under his skin as Alma. It's just so much fun. So is it his most important work? I don't know. I think, you know, aesthetically, it, it's maybe not as um, bravura as some of his other films, but there's just something about Phantom Thread um, that uh, that I love so much and mm-hmm. I had to have it on this list. Yeah, it makes sense. In fact, I considered it for my top 20. I considered Inherent Vice. That's how much I like that film. PTA had a chance to get three films on yeah. my list. Inherent and, Vice may be even funnier. Yeah, I think it is funnier, but Phantom Thread is sneaky funny and yeah. it's a film that has certainly paid off in terms of memes. I feel like there are so many quotable lines and different mm-hmm. screen grabs you can pull from that film, which is, I'm sure, exactly what PTA yes. intended with Phantom I'm Thread. Sure, I'm sure scenes were framed, composed with that in mind. <laughs> My number 13 film is one of the films I got to rewatch in preparation for this list, and it's from 2011. I'm going to go ahead and let a longtime listener, someone who's been listening way before 2010 or 11, do the honors of announcing this pick. Hey, Adam and Josh, uh, Film Spotting. This is uh, Joshua Youngerman calling in to give my film of the decade. Um, it's probably Mad Max Fury Road, but I really think that Margaret is, in, if not the top movie, it's definitely in the top two, uh, directed by Kenneth Lonergan. I think, uh, especially watching the director's cut, which I did um, last year, this is a movie that I think really is about a young person discovering just how messed up the world is. Um, and I think even though it was filmed in 2005 and it came out around the Occupy movement, um, it's a movie that really captures a young person's sort of almost um, descent or um, rise into activism. Um, whether you look at the Obama uh, movement, whether you look at Occupy, whether you look at the Bernie Sanders movement, or even now with um, the environmental movement, it's young people leading the way. And I think this movie really captures the young person discovering just how unjust the world is. And I also think Anna Patrick just gives the best performance of the decade. Anyways, hope you guys have a great Best of the Decade show. 
Thank you, Josh, for that. My number 13 film of the decade is Kenneth Lonergan's Margaret. And here's the thing. I appreciate everything Josh said and knowing Josh a little bit, that interpretation of the film completely jives with his personality and his preoccupations. This idea that it's a movie about a young person becoming aware of the injustice in the world and maybe this rising sense of activism. I'm not sure I agree with Josh at all on anything he said in terms of that interpretation of the film, especially because whatever righteousness that main character, Lisa, played by Anna Paquin, tries to enact, I think is driven mostly by her own feelings of guilt and her personal need to be punished. And then you've got Sam, who I was talking about this movie with. He has it. He just did a letterbox only list, but he's got Margaret as his second favorite film of the decade. And he views the whole thing as Lisa basically standing in for American foreign policy. And you know what? They might both be right. Well, they might both be wrong. There's a lot of references there are. to that sort of stuff in the movie. Specifically that, classroom scenes I'd forgotten yeah, about yeah, for sure. that get into that. There's no doubt about that. But all I know is that discrepancy between me, between Sam, between Josh, even though I'm not completely disregarding their interpretations, that discrepancy and the myriad of personal responses and interpretations, that's precisely what makes Margaret so great. And it's precisely what the movie is about to me. I think about Lisa's line talking to her mother, played by J. Smith Cameron in the film, that comes fairly late in the movie where she says people don't relate to each other, Mom. They're totally disconnected. That's the film. That's Margaret in one line, scene after scene of people not just not being able to relate to each other, but they're trying desperately to relate in classrooms in living rooms, in bedrooms, on the street, at dinner, wherever it is, and they're failing utterly and completely. And it's out of anger, it's out of frustration, it's out of immaturity or privilege or whatever human traits that we all have within us. All of those are factors in why there is this disconnection. And truly, I I could list so many scenes, but one that amused me this time watching the film, and I hadn't seen it since 2011, I did watch the extended cut this time. I saw it in the theater originally at a critic screening because it really didn't play in theaters, right? I don't remember the exact lore with Margaret, yeah, from but my it was tough to see. It got see. a very small release initially until there was that sort of critical response saying yeah. it deserves more attention. And then it was halfway into the next year where the extended cut became available. Right. And there really are so many examples of this, but I think about this scene this time that amused me so much in a way. And I don't know if it was in the original theatrical cut or not, but Lonergan is in the film playing the father Mm -hmm. to Lisa and they're divorced. And we only see him really on the phone and he's calling from California, I think back to New York. And they're going to go on this horseback riding trip that Lisa's really excited about. And according to her, her brother is too. And you've got him on the phone just saying repeatedly to her, Nobody wants to go. Nobody Mm -hmm. wants to go. She's literally vocalizing multiple times how eager she is to go on this trip. He's not hearing it or he is hearing it. And he's just so completely caught up in the minutiae and the tedium of his own life and his own selfish pursuits that it's not processing at all. Can I give you another reading on that? I think that that could very well be right. But that comes at a moment in the film. It's almost like he's just 
telling everyone to lay their cards on the table. And it's kind of the same thing you're saying. Mm-hmm. It's it's acknowledging the disconnection. Sure. Because they they've all they all kind of have hesitancy about this trip. It's a trip for show. It's to show that he's still a good dad. Yes. It's to show that they're still close to him. And everyone has independently complained about this trip. And he's aware of this. So he's basically just saying, enough with the BS. We can't connect. Yeah. We don't really know each other. A little bit. Let's just stop the charade. Yeah, and I get it. it's heartbreaking I get it, though. I feel like the movie does show that the only person who really seems put out by it is his new wife. And well, she's the final straw. Yeah, for sure. and, and, and she, Lisa, seems genuinely interested in going. And I like that Lonergan gives us that moment where we linger with him after that call. And I think we see that, I mean, he is human. I think he knows enough that he's disappointing his daughter and that that was tough to do, but he still did it. Mm-hmm. And he's just now going to pretend it didn't happen. He's going to go on with his life. But there is that moment of, of angst yeah. that he knows as a father, he's let his daughter down. But this is also a script where, and there are some other movies that do this, but I've never seen a film that does it to this extent where you see characters constantly calling attention to their word choices and what they meant to say versus how it's being received or maybe misunderstood. And there again, a movie shot in 2005, finally released in 2011, feels as 2020 in that regard as any movie possibly could. And just Paquin in that performance, you joked last week, but not really. You put it on our website. You mean it. Anna Paquin deserves to be considered one of the best performers of the decade just for Margaret. Yes. And after watching the film, I felt that way already, but it's even clearer to me. And I feel so many different ways, not just about what the film might be saying, but about Lisa herself as a character. She's super privileged, obviously, and it's easy to want to write her off for that and for other stupid things she says and does in the movie. But she is deep feeling as a person. She's someone who isn't just processing everything that's happening to her, including this horrific trauma that she was not only part of, she may have been one of the causes of, but she's over-processing everything that's occurring to her. And a lot of bad things are happening to her at this very sort of vital, impressionable time of her life. And at the same time, she's got this really poetic view of the world that I really respond to and like in her. And she overcompensates for that by then at times trying to be as vulgar and direct Mm -hmm. as she possibly can. And she's too honest with people. And she's demeaning herself and degrading certain experiences that should actually mean more. And it's almost like she's trying to check her own privilege. She has enough self-awareness to try to check it a little bit by, as I said, demeaning it. Though all that does, I think in some way, is reflect on her privilege. It's a movie filled with so many contradictions. And that's why I love it. And that's why it seemed essential to me as a film of the 2010s. Yeah, the issue with the word choices, characters, you know, choosing which words, there's the great scene that's all about that between are you Lisa. Gonna, are you going to drop Strident on me? <laughs> oh, my gosh. That's, and here's the wonderful thing. I'm watching that actress playing. The, this is Berlin. another woman, Jeannie Berlin, another woman who Elaine Lisa May's daughter. comes into contact with um, because of this accident. And they form a relationship. And she's so good. And I'm thinking, what? What is familiar here? Yeah. Yeah. It's it. the Heartbreak Kid. It's in Elaine May's you The Heartbreak it, right? Kid, where she is the newlywed bride, and she is so great in this film. I'm really glad that this exercise gave me the excuse to finally see Margaret. Um, I, I think it's just fantastic. And to speak to what you're talking about, I think you're answering 
a question I had after seeing it with your idea about this disconnection, because one technique Lonergan uses is um, overlapping dialogue from not even just other supporting characters in a scene, but from extras, essentially. Like, you don't even really know who's talking in a diner. You just hear them, and they're drowning out Lisa and someone she's talking to. Right. And it's very effective. It's a way of reframing. I, I said on Letterboxd, I asked, like, what do people think about this use? Because to me, I was I couldn't figure out exactly why. Part of it was maybe to just show that Lisa's story is one among many. Sure. But I think it's also exactly what you're I, I saying, do. to yeah. disrupt any sort of connections being made. And a lot of those extraneous conversations are exactly about that, people who are not connected. They are. That's exactly so, right. And I think you are correct with that reading, potentially, but also watching it this time, and it's something I wouldn't have noticed the first time. My understanding is, I don't know a whole lot about the differences between the two films, but I believe that that was a key distinction, that Lonergan tweaked the sound on this, because I don't remember that technique being applied in the original cut that I saw. It was the extended I watched. It's really noticeable Mm -hmm. here. And the part where it really connected with me, what I thought Lonergan was getting at, is one of the shots early on where after we've been inside Lisa's family's apartment, we then cut to outside and we hear this argument that's taking place with some neighbors or some people in the same building. And the camera just lingers from the outside on that. And opera is a running theme Mm -hmm. throughout this movie, factors in heavily at the end of the film. And for me, it was all about Lonergan not only expressing that disconnection, because you're right, it's always about people talking about something that's not making sense to them or Mm -hmm. they're in an argument, a disagreement of some kind with the person they're speaking to. But also this idea that all of these people, the people you walk by every day on the street and take for granted as they're just that punk privileged kid or she's just that woman who's riding her bike or he's just the bus driver, whoever they are, they are all in their own operas. Yeah, totally. Every single one of them are the stars of their own opera where hugely dramatic, grandiose issues are playing out, circumstances are playing out. And every day he shows it, too, in terms of all those shots of the city and the people just going about their daily lives. But juxtaposed with those dramas that we get to eavesdrop on and then these key characters that we get to follow, we see just how difficult every one of their lives are. Well, and part of Lisa's journey is to realize that exact thing and that her story circles other stories, involves other stories, and that it it isn't just this narcissistic experience. Life is not a narcissistic experience. Right. And she's coming to awareness of that. While at the same time, to circle all the way back to what Josh Youngerman was saying, for me, in terms of, you know, what what it might say about uh, someone at that age, an older teenager, basically she's just beginning to realize that the world doesn't always make sense. And you're not going to be able to make sense of it, even if you think you've got the right answer. Mm -hmm. And the real difficulty in the drama she's experiencing now is that after she sort of fails herself um, in the aftermath, a series of supposedly honest adults fail her. And that's kind of what cracks her open, I think. And she's going to have to grow up and to learn to live with that dissonance. Yes. Yeah. Good movie. Glad we could squeeze in a little I like uh, that line. mini review of uh, Margaret here. <laughs> I'm still trying to grow up and live with the dissonance. <laughs> yeah. Well, aren't we all? All right. Back to our list. We're at number 12, I believe. Is that we, where are. we are? Okay. Number 12. This one, it, this won't take too long because it's a movie that's still in theaters, rolling out, I think, expanding more. It, yes, it is a recent one from 2019, Portrait of a Lady on Fire. Spoiler, it's the only title on my top 20 from 2019. And I think it's the most recent title then also for sure on my list. Um, 
I've spoken at length about this on our top 10 roundtable. Mm-hmm. It's come up elsewhere. So I'm going to let another critic, Alyssa Wilkinson, make the case for me here. This is Alyssa writing at Vox. Portrait of a Lady on Fire is a restrained film until it isn't and exquisite in its rendering of both the women's relationship and the period it's set in. It's not just a romance ruled by the female gaze. It's centered in a world where men rarely intrude, and thus the full gamut of female emotion and desire is on display. So again, that's Alyssa Wilkinson. And I think maybe that points to why it does make this list for me over other 2019 films and why I didn't let that recency bias work against it, maybe. This is essentially the decade of Me Too, even though that came a little bit later in the decade. The film industry really is pretty much ground zero for that. And so I sort of love that this trenchant film on that subject barely bothers with men at all. And it's all the better for it. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think this is one that is not only a personal favorite of mine, but is also, you know, it's, it's similar to Meek's cutoff. It's set in a very different era but also of the era we just experienced yeah. in, a, in a really uh, compelling way. So that's that's my number 12. Yeah, it's a great choice. One I did actually consider for this list as well, and this is where I should definitely get into my number 11 choice because it'd be a perfect segue, but I'm going to stick with our structure here. I'll go to my number 12, especially because my number 12 is also going to reference my number 13, which, of course, was Margaret. But here I've got another 2011 film, and it's Abbas Kiarostami's Certified Copy, a movie that stars Juliette Binoche as a French woman who lives in Tuscany, and she has a son. And we see at the beginning of the film, she goes to a talk that's given by an English writer who is promoting the English translation of his book. The book is called Certified Copy, and they end up meeting up with each other and spending the day with each other. And it's a very bizarre relationship that right away we are trying to make sense of and kind of trying to process exactly what they may or may not mean to each other. And that conundrum is going to play out and become only more heightened over the course of the movie. There's a moment in Margaret that is completely relevant to certified copy where J. Smith Cameron, Lisa's mother, is talking to a man that she started dating, who is played by Jean Renault. His name's Ramon. And he loves the play that she's in. She's an actress. She is in this play that may be going to Broadway. It's getting a lot of acclaim. She, in particular, has been getting good reviews. One just came out in the New York Times. It was a rave about her in particular. And she's talking about, Josh, the difference now in the response to the play since that New York Times review came out. Yeah, right. Right. How audiences are behaving differently once it got labeled as a success. And he says, but it's a fine play. And she says, yeah, and it always has been. But now people are reacting even more strongly to it and they're giving us standing ovations. The play hasn't changed. The performances haven't changed. Only the perception and that response to it has. And I think Lonergan's getting at a central truth about how our experience with something can completely change based on perception, a perception that is always in flux. It's ever shifting. It's susceptible to the whims of our own emotions and to outside influences, of course. And you see a movie like Certified Copy where William Schimmel's James, this author, has argued in his book that a reproduction should be considered an equal of the original. And for the next two hours or so, Kiristami challenges us as viewers to consider the implications of that. My recollection of this movie, having not seen it since 2011, was that there was this central mystery 
One, it turns out, looking back on my notes, I reviewed it with Tasha Robinson at the time. She was a guest on the show. I did attempt an answer to. I, I felt like I knew where it came out, or at least I was arguing for one side. Is this a genuine married couple, or are they engaged in some curious intellectual game? And this time, 30, 40 minutes into the film, I was positive there's no way these two people were anything but an actual couple who were pretending, at first anyway, to just be meeting each other for the first time, that it was this game. By the end of the movie, Josh, I'd completely shifted back to having absolutely no idea Mm -hmm. and leaning towards their having never met at all before that day. And this movie, I think it ranked number three on IndieWire's list of the best films of the decade. David Ehrlich wrote the blurb for it, and he said this, Kiristami doesn't care about the answer, but he's utterly compelled by the difference. And I think that says it perfectly because, yes, and so was I. And so is almost every viewer I know who went on this journey with these two characters in certified copy. And, of course, it's Kiristami, so it's also a movie about movies in its own subtle way. There's a scene that takes place at a fountain where there's a statue of two figures in the middle of it. And we meet a married couple, one that is unquestionably married in so much as they're Kiristami's version of a married couple. And before we get to that, we see our two leads talking to each other about the statue. And Benosha's character says, I like it. And he asks, what do you like about it? And she is a little bit dismissive and says, I don't see why I have to try and convince you. And he wonders how she can convince herself. He says, you're a real art expert, aren't you? And she says that she doesn't see it as a work of art. I'm going to jump ahead because he doesn't like the statue and he writes it off and he says, you're being too sentimental and that the man we see portrayed in the statue has nothing to do but protect the woman next to him. He doesn't think it's right that this figure is being immortalized for being nothing more than a protector of this woman. And her feeling about that statue, Benoche says, I like the way she rests her head on his shoulder. Sometimes with art, with cinema, certainly, there are all these intellectual reasons to consider something and to potentially dismiss something. But you know what? Sometimes how someone rests her head on another person's shoulder, that's all we need. Well, and that's what certified copy manages both. It manages all those intellectual provocations, not heavily, but playfully, and then it also manages to make this slipperiness that it has deeply romantic, mm-hmm. and you can just enjoy the movie on that term as well. For so, sure. Yeah, glad to see it made the cut there for you. All right, number 11, my last pick for this show, at least, before we get next week to our top 10s, Ex Machina from 2015. And a movie like this, a sci-fi movie set in a near future, you know, it's interesting to ask. So came out in 2015, now in 2020, are we any closer to this terrifying technological future that Alex Garland gave us in his debut? I know I can certainly say that I have more series and Alexas and Googles that I can talk to in my house than I did when this movie came out. They don't look like Alicia Vikander and no. they're definitely not as smart as her. <laughs> so uh, we're not there yet. But I think the trick that Ex Machina pulled off was not predicting the future. That wasn't really the point. Of the movie. Um, rather, it was the trick was capturing how technology had already in 2015 redefined the present. So it made us think differently about the basic things what it means to be human, what yes. it means to interact as humans, and then forces us to reassess whether or not technology has helped us do any better at those endeavors. 
Why did you tell me I shouldn't trust Nathan? Because he tells lies. Lies about what? Everything. Including the power cuts? What do you mean? Don't you think it's possible that he's watching us? Right now? The blackouts are orchestrated so he can see how we behave when we think we're unobserved. I charge my batteries via induction plates. If I reverse the power flow, it overloads the system. You're causing the cuts? So we can see how we behave when we're unobserved. Now, in her performance as this AI robot, Ava, Vikander really pulls off one of the the great mind Fs you can do as an actor because she's not only making us root for quite possibly the villain in this movie, um, but even kind of against humanity itself in favor of the machines. Yeah. Uh, You could say that's that's where we're taken by the end of this film. It has that. It has the architecture of this house and it's on the level of Parasite in terms of using production design to match with theme, how it's set in this primordial natural setting, but the house is also built right into that with the the latest in technology at the same time. Mm -hmm. So it's those two things merging and butting up against each other. It has a dancing Oscar Isaac, so it's not... You could have just stopped there. I could have You stopped. had me at dancing Oscar Isaac. I mean, it's just crucial in, not only because it's so sheerly entertaining, but also in puncturing any sort of pretensions a movie with these sorts of ideas might have. This is thoroughly entertaining at the same time and works as a thriller also. So, yeah, Ex Machina, I think, is one of those dangerous to put a movie on a list like this that's futuristic because, you know, if we look back at this list 10 years from now, maybe Ex Machina looks incredibly dated in its vision of the future. But I again, hope not. I don't think I don't know that it will, but that won't matter because that's not really what it's about. It's no. about these other things I've been talking about that it just does so incredibly well. Yeah. So you had it as your number one of the year 2015. I had it as my number two. I okay. love it. Definitely thought about it. Glad to see it on your list. And I know Matt Singer wrote this somewhere, I think, on Letterboxd, and we have talked about it over the course of some shows back in 2015 when it kept popping up. The beauty of Ex Machina is that you can watch it multiple times, and every time you can come up with a different character who is the hero of the movie. Yes. It can be Oscar Isaac. It can be Alicia Vikander's character. It can be Donald Gleason, and all three of them can be the villains, too, if you want to look at it from that perspective. So it's a movie that I think rewards multiple viewings and warrants a lot of consideration. It turns out, Josh, you still provided a perfect segue (laughs) into my number 11 choice here because I've got another great performance by an actress playing a non-human. And it is Under the Skin from 2014, directed by Jonathan Glazer. Let's hear The Professor a key figure in a lot of our marathons here of late. Nathaniel Myers, he's in South Bend, Indiana. He's got under the skin at or at least very near the top of his best films of the decade. Hey, guys. I don't know if the film I'm about to mention is actually my best of the decade, but it's definitely in my top five, and it's one I'll gladly champion on the podcast. I'm talking about Jonathan Glazer's Under the Skin. Like 2001, A Space Odyssey, which Under the Skin is so clearly in conversation with, It's a film that seems to want to tell its story primarily through its images and editing and music. It's what Hitchcock might call pure cinema, which I don't think necessarily means it's a great film, 
but which does highlight those qualities of Under the Skin that help create the unique experience of watching it. Among those aspects I love most are Johansson's performance, which you guys praised last week, as well as Mika Levy's dissonant and disquieting score, and Glazer's observant camera work. It's as if Johansson and Glazer are both discovering our world for the first time, which, of course, suits a story about an alien's first encounter with humans and human culture, but which also allows the film to, among other things, restore a kind of mystery to our world. Sometimes that mystery is beautiful. Sometimes in the film, it's incredibly terrifying. And while for most of Under the Skin, you might think that its key mystery is about how an inhuman creature discovers its own humanity, ultimately its most sobering revelation in the final 15 minutes or so is the reverse, that under the skin of every human lies the capacity for such terrible inhumanity. So there's no doubt it's a strange film, and you definitely have to go in willing to get on its wavelength. But I'd also say it's the film's unique ability to capture that sense of strangeness of our world that makes it stand out among a field of other great films from the decade. So it's funny, this is a film that hasn't really come up much since it came out in 2014 here on the show, and then back-to-back weeks it's referenced here and also in praising Scarlett Johansson last week as my number four performer of the decade, my number two actress. And there was one other time. I snuck in a reference to it, I think, on our end-of-year roundtable when we were talking about Portrait of a Lady on Fire as one of the best films of the year. And these are two movies that have only in common, Josh, probably, that they have female protagonists. And as viewers, the camera's point of view is so specific and so crucial to the film that we identify with the gaze of each of those female protagonists. We effectively see the world through their eyes. Now, in the film world of Portrait— And Alyssa's quote kind of gets at this. It's not necessarily so subversive because it's a period piece that's taking place in an isolated place where men aren't around. We see some just sort of who happen to be there in the end, and we meet one at the very beginning of the film, and that's it. In Under the Skin, it's the present day, and our protagonist is an alien predator who has taken the form of a woman. All she does is make connections all with a distinct objective, a need, a hunger, whatever you want to call it, a hunger that's mirrored by the men she's encountering. If this movie came out in 2019, there wouldn't be a review of it that didn't mention Me Too. How many essays would we have gotten about Under the Skin in relation to the Me Too movement? And that way, absolutely prescient. And that camera, as Nathaniel said, that observant camera, and I mentioned with Johansson's performance, the lines that are improvised, the scenes that are improvised, the camera sometimes capturing people in exchanges in which they don't know they're being filmed. It absolutely puts us in a position to look at our world as if we're seeing it for the first time. There's real magic in that, but there's something more than magic. There's something deeply unsettling and necessary when you're seeing the world as it looks and feels to a woman. It's another film, Josh, as we talk about characters who were torn a little bit on as whether they're heroes or villains or whether we have sympathy for Mm -hmm. characters who are doing unsympathetic things. This is a movie that definitely shifts in that regard as well. Well, just thinking about, you know, viewing this film for the first time in a post Me Too world, that ending, which I won't give away. Yes. um, 
for those who haven't seen it for whatever reason, that ending, it's rough yes. as is when we saw it, but has even more, I, I think, punch and for sure. gut-wrenching now. Well, those are the first 10 films in our top 20 films of 2010 countdown. We will get to our top 10 next week. All right. If you want to give us some last minute recommendations for films we haven't mentioned that you think really need to be in that top 10, find us on Facebook, find us on Twitter. No, you're shaking your head. These are you're etched done. in stone. Etched the tablets, stone. they've been taken down from the mound. These 10 titles have been written. I don't know. I don't know. There might be something we're forgetting. Anyway, let us know. Adam is at Film Spotting. I'm at Larson on Film. If you want to head over to the show archives at filmspotting.net, that's where you can find reviews, interviews, and top fives going all the way back to 2005. You can also vote in the current Film Spotting poll. While the poll right now is Film Spotting Madness 2020. That's it. The best of the 2010s, the round one matchups. To order Film Spotting t-shirts or other Film Spotting merch, visit filmspotting.net slash shop. And to subscribe to the weekly Film Spotting newsletter, go to filmspotting.net slash newsletter. Out in wide release this weekend, Elizabeth Moss in The Invisible Man, a movie we were both somewhat eager to see just based on Moss's involvement. Seems like it's getting fairly decent reviews. We hope to make it to that in limited release, a movie we definitely hope to catch up with, Beanpole. It's set in post-World War II Leningrad, a potential golden brick candidate. Our friend Scott Tobias from The Next Picture Show said... Second viewing for an NPR review to run later this week. Still devastating, still exquisitely wrought, still featuring the scene to beat in 2020. All that sounds good to wow, me. Wow, putting down his mark for next year's rap party, perhaps. Though I see that word devastating, Josh, and it makes me a little bit worried about what I'm in store for. Emma also out, possibly another Golden Brick candidate featuring the debut of photographer Autumn DeWilde. It's an adaptation, of course, of the oft-filmed Jane Austen novel. Once We're Brothers, Robbie Robertson and the band also out and worth seeing. And finally, we're going to get a chance to see Seberg with Kristen Stewart as actress Jean Seberg of Breathless fame. Finally, The Times of Bill Cunningham. This is a documentary about the legendary New York Times photographer who was the subject of another good documentary, 2010's Bill Cunningham, New York. Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Halgren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Our production assistant is Kat Sullivan. Thanks also to Candace Griffiths and the listeners of the Film Spotting Advisory Board. And special thanks to everyone at WBEZ Chicago. More information is available at WBEZ.org. Our music this week is by Nicholas Godin from the album Concrete and Glass. More information is at nicholasgodin.com. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. Film Spotting is listener supported. Join the Film Spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com and get access to ad free episodes, monthly bonus shows, our weekly newsletter, and for the first time, all in one place, the entire Film Spotting archive going back to 2005. That's at filmspottingfamily.com.